one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So, about 3 years ago, just as the pandemic was beginning, I watched a show about a Canadian comedian who moved to London and fell in love. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since. I've never been on a date with a girl before. Yeah. No, oh no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no. I, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so then would you say that you've ever kissed a girl? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm not a Mormon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. Oh, so I exclusively date Mormons. Oh. <laughs> Well, do you like films? Do you want to kiss me, mate? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah? I oh, thought that would be so cool. This is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was May Martin from the first season of their brilliantly funny and moving Netflix series, Feel Good. Today, May dropped their first hour-long stand-up special called Sap, also on Netflix, and it is already one of my favorites of the year. May has such a fascinating story, much of which they portrayed on screen in Feel Good, from starting comedy at an absurdly young age in Toronto, to breaking through at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, to making the decision to come out as gender non-binary both in the second season of their show and in real life. Anyway, we had a ton to talk about in this conversation, so let's go to it now. Here's me with May Martin. What's going on? What's so chaotic? Where are you these days? Oh my God. <laughs> um, I'm in LA and I'm just, I'm in a writer's room for a new show that I'm doing and, but also doing press for the special and <laughs> it's all, it's all good, but it all happens at once always. Yeah, it's a lot. I saw, um, I know we were supposed to do this last week um, and you weren't feeling well, so I hope you're feeling better. But I, I saw that you also had to cancel on Stephen Colbert. So that must have been hard. I know. I got the old, I got the vid. It, oh, I, it was, man. It was so bum out. Yeah, I went all the way to New York and then sat in a hotel room for three days. Oh, God. And I, yeah, and I've never done a late night show. I was so pumped because I'm a big fan of his. But um, I hope you get to do it again. Me too. Me too. Um, well, I'm so excited to have you here because I'm I'm just a huge fan of your work and I love the new special, uh, Sap. I just got to see it, um, the new Netflix special. So yeah, um, I would love to just, just start there. I mean, this is a big deal getting a, a first big hour long special on Netflix. Uh, how are you feeling, you know, with it, with about to come out? And I think when people are hearing this, it will be out. So people will, will be able to watch it right now. I'm really nervous it's always scary putting putting something out in the world I'm kind of compartmentalizing it and um burying my head in the sand because it's too scary but I'm excited I I toured the show for for a while and uh I had so much fun doing it so yeah I hope I hope people like it you know what the tricky thing is like doing the trailer and the clips and things because <laughs> I tell I tell a lot of really long stories and it doesn't really lend itself to to little viral clips you know so yeah well I did appreciate that the trailer is is one joke as opposed to when you, people try to put like 10 different like one lines that don't out of context in the trailer so I enjoyed the the one joke trailer 
So we dated for like six months, me and this guy, and uh, you know, it was really nice, but it's like, I'm 35, he's 36. Like at this point, we both have big X's in our past. You know what I mean? Like we're never gonna be that big X for each other. Like we're never gonna properly traumatize each other. So it's kind of like, <laughs> what's the point? Um, and <laughs> we were, so we were in bed one night and we were just chatting. We were having like just a, a nice lighthearted chat. He wasn't trying to be heavy, but he just goes, hey, if we had kids one day, what would we name our kids? And I was, like, I, don't, I was like, I don't know. Like at this point, I've had that conversation with so many people. And I was like, I don't know. Let me just wade through this graveyard of dead hypothetical children to try to get to the new hypothetical kids. I'm passing like the ghosts of, I'm like, oh look, there's Olive and Basil, the twins, you know? <laughs> Thanks, yeah, I, I sort of wish the trailer was like in a world like and yeah. it was just <laughs> just sort of unrelated images and things but yeah well i was i spent uh, a good part of the special trying to figure out the title sap um the forest motif was my first clue um, but then it sort of uh reveals itself as you go along um, yeah titles that, are hard <laughs> yeah was that something that you uh that you thought a lot about i mean the word just makes me laugh first of all and and um it has sort of a double meaning with you know, meaning like a, a real wimp and uh, and then also tree sap, which kind of near the end of the show. Yeah. Like you said, reveals itself in an anecdote. But um, yeah, I, I guess it's sort of about in the context of that anecdote about looking for the positive in a, a terrible world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was directed by Abby Jacobson, uh, who's been on this podcast and is someone else who I, I really adore. Um, how did the two of you connect and, and end up working together on this? I'm such a huge fan of hers and uh I think we our our friendship was kind of we were set up as friends by Lisa Kudrow actually who who almost as soon as I met Lisa she was like you got to meet Abby Jacobson you're <laughs> you're really similar and you'll get along and yeah Lisa's good at sort of pairing people up I think and and uh so then we yeah we started hanging out and I just think she's so clever and brilliant and funny and like kind and a very soothing presence, uh, which is crucial when you're yeah, recording helpful. a special. Yeah, totally. And I like that she's not a stand-up. Um, so she comes at things from a slightly different storytelling angle. Um, and it was just really nice having someone else who cared about it a lot, you know, to come to the previews and Abby helped with um, kind of reordering it. Like I'd been, I'd been touring it for a year. So you got slightly dead behind the eyes with it and you, you forget or it's hard to get out of what you've been doing. So it's good to have someone shake it up a little. What was something that she brought to it or an idea or, or, or just something that, that maybe made you think about something differently um, based on a conversation with her? One thing was, there's a, a story about a mailman that um, used to come at the end and, and we moved it right up to the front and that that was helpful. And then um, there are a couple of things that were consistently not working but I was just attached to them <laughs> and you know, I just liked saying them and was like was like no I swear this will work and it was like well I've seen you do it eight times and no one's ever <laughs> laughed so it's good um, to have someone who could be honest with you like that totally yeah and then just on the night with the with the actual camera angles and that was great yeah. Um, one thing that you say pretty early in the special I think is that you're uh, nostalgic for this pre-puberty time, a time before the internet, um, and that you say you, you feel like a completely different person now. So I was curious what you meant by that. So how, how do you feel like, you know, 
the internet uh, you know changed everything for you, and and what what do you mean by that? You feel like a a completely different person now uh, post internet. I think like the reason that I obsess over my teens and I, I sort of I'm constantly processing it is that. I feel like a completely different person now. And I did have this kind of chaotic adolescence and it got, it was really dark, like it was crazy. And then now I feel truly like a completely different person. Like I'm very risk averse now. You, she, yeah. <laughs> you should see me on an escalator. It's <laughs> insane. I hold so tight to the railing. I'm very like, <laughs> as the thing's approaching, oh my God, I'm like one, two, three. <laughs> Wait for my moment. <laughs> If I'm, if I'm not ready and it's coming, I'm walking backwards. I'm going... <laughs> Actually, that was in reference to feeling like a different person to who I was in, in my teens when I was very sort of sketchy and <laughs> engaging in a lot of very uh, high-risk behaviors. Um, so that was post-internet. So that was more like I've, I feel like I'm always trying to kind of decode my, my teens because they were so tumultuous and I, I was so badly behaved and... and uh, angry and self-destructive and, and I really don't feel that way now and so I'm, it really feels like trying to remember being that person and why I was doing all that is a sort of constant mystery but in terms of the internet I mean I think we all can feel our brains just slowly fracturing into a million pieces and uh yeah I, I feel a, a it's a constant battle not to feel pessimistic about all of our attention spans and, and my own. And I, you know, I used to read, I used yeah, to, I, hear that. I just, I'm, I'm, I feel so lucky that I had a childhood without the internet, basically. I'm yeah, that exact. Same. Yeah. Right. Like I can't even watch a movie now without being on my phone. Yeah. Um, that's a challenge. It's like, it's, I, I feel myself being drawn to it and I have to like force myself to leave it in my pocket or put it in the other room. It's, yeah, it's, it's really it's weird. It's like a drug addiction. Yeah. I, do you, Leave yours in another room at night when you sleep? No, I I have thought about it a lot and I, I can't do it. It's just, it's got to be right there. I But I am very disciplined about not looking at it until I'm like ready to wake up. Like if I wake up in the middle of the night, I if I look at it, I feel like that's, it's going to be over. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I'm the same. <laughs> yeah. But I, I used to be worse like socially with friends. I Everyone would be like, get off your phone. And now I'm, I think I'm better, but. Um, so, you know, talking about your, your childhood and how you grew up, you grew up in Toronto, right? Um, what was your, what was your childhood like, um, you know, before the, the tumultuous stuff started happening? I mean, I remember it as being pretty magical that, uh, yeah, I had really creative parents, so I'm lucky and, um, yeah, you know, I went to camp in the summer and, and I loved that and, my dad's English, so we would go for Christmas in London, and that always felt really special. And it was this, all my dreams take place in this one house that my dad grew up in um, that we used to visit where my grandma lived. And I think it was a really, like, potent place for me in my subconscious. All my dreams are there. Yeah, and I didn't, even, I didn't spend that much time there, but it was this old kind of really narrow house with um, not, not very big in London and just, like, crammed with stuff, like, kind of trinkets and old stuff of my grandfather's and like stuff from the second world war and and it was just very yeah very uh magical how did comedy come into the picture because i know you started quite young uh doing stand-up yeah i think i um well i don't know why i thought it was a viable career option i i always loved it my parents were comedy fans and then took me to a stand-up club when i was 11 and i sat in the front row and 
the comedian got me up on stage, like the headliner, and and that was very electric. That was and a then formative I, moment. Oh my god, yeah. Everyone was like, my parents were so stressed and thought it was going to be traumatizing, but I was like, <laughs> I was like, yes, this comedian has recognized. <laughs> um, Do you see kids in the audience at your shows ever now? And is it strange? No, now you know. Back then, it was like nobody seemed to give a shit about letting children in those spaces and now people are so strict about it so I, I wish I had more kids in the audience <laughs> I think they could handle it yeah um, definitely yeah but then I had a camp counselor called Dave Armstrong who's he was the first person who said that you know you're you're funny and you should you should take improv classes and really do this because I guess he was like 18 and doing comedy and I was like 14 or something or 13 um, there's a video on your YouTube channel that I'm sure you're aware of, of a, I believe it's a 2003 TV appearance when you were 16 years old. Um, and you're sort of playing a, a character, uh, that's not yourself, I think, but I'm not sure how close yeah. it was to yourself <laughs> at that time. As far as uh, current events go that relate to women in the media, um, one event in particular sticks out in my mind, um, Buffy was canceled. <laughs> It's, it's over. <laughs> and that's cool. Like, I respect that Sarah Michelle felt it was an appropriate time in her career to move on, like, to better projects like Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo 2. It's not so much that I'm hurt, it's just that I feel kind of abandoned. Like, I wish she told me because it came as kind of a shock. Like, not me personally, but if she just sent out, like, a chain email to her core group of fans, the online Slayer Circle fanzine message club. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell the story behind that? What is, what's the story of that uh, that clip? It was a comedy competition called the Tim Sims Encouragement Fund Award uh, in Toronto. And I was nominated for it. And all the nominees, our sets were broadcast on Canadian TV. It's from 2003, but don't you think it looks like it's from 1990? It's like, yeah, it's, it's like the grainy quality. I don't know. Was Canadian TV uh, or was just all of our TV was was worse then? I think it was Canadian TV was just <laughs> garbage. But um, yeah, I did a character called Catherine Butchko who was in, I was wearing my school uniform and she's just like obsessed with Buffy and uh, a real, yeah, it was a, it was a weird time. I mean, I got kicked out of my house like a month after that was filmed. Like it was a very, that was a very tumultuous time. So it's crazy to, why did you, why did you get kicked out of your house? I think just doing, doing drugs and being an asshole and yeah, but it's weird to watch that. Cause I look, so innocent <laughs> but yeah it's it's i'm it's funny that i was doing these like crazy characters and now i now i don't really do that yeah was that something was that sort of from the beginning you were doing characters and then you moved away from it or how did that how did that develop yeah i i started doing improv and and yeah wacky wacky characters and then maybe around 16 17 i started doing more stand up and that and musical comedy and then slowly transitioned into more my being myself was that a difficult transition to start instead of you know sort of talk being a character and hiding behind that in a way to really dropping that character and and getting more personal on stage and talking about what was really going on with you yeah i think i think it's hard to be yourself when you don't really know who you are and um so it took a it took a while to have anything of worth to say and you know and it took putting some distance between things to be able to talk about them. So yeah, it was kind of when I was about 26 or 27, I think I started to get my head around it and, and figure out, yeah, who I was going to be on stage. Yeah. I mean, cause it's not like there wasn't 
a lot going on in your life for those younger years. I mean, it sounds like with, you know, drugs and, and a lot of, you know, dicey stuff, as you said. So, but you just felt like it wasn't, you didn't know how to talk about that stuff on stage. Yeah, I just had no idea the kind of comedian I wanted to be. So I tried all different types and um, I was just doing impersonations of my favorite comedians, basically, and doing like sort of, yeah, being like Bill Hicks or or trying to be like Jim Carrey or, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then at a certain point you moved to London, right? So what what prompted that, um, that change? I was dating someone who was going there to do a master's degree and I had family there. My grandma was still there who I hadn't seen in, in years actually. And, uh, cause I'd been so chaotic. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to come. But I, I thought I'd be there maybe a year. And, um, as soon as we got there, I just, I loved it. I loved the whole comedy scene. There it was so, it was so, it's kind of theatrical and built around people doing these hour long Edinburgh fringe shows, uh, which really suited me. I liked that a lot. And, so I loved it and she hated it, my, my ex. And so she moved back to Canada and I stayed for 12 years. Wow. What was it? What was the process of getting into the Edinburgh Fringe Festival? I mean, how do you how do you do that? And how do you get to the point where you can actually have a, your own hour long show there? I, I mean, it's the application process is pretty easy. It's just it's kind of prohibit, prohibitively expensive. It's it's kind of a, a big talking point over there is how because yeah, they don't really just, pay you. No, like you can you can do the free fringe and that's sort of more reasonable where you, you pay for your venue and then people come and put money in a bucket uh, and it actually works out to being more profitable because the venues are cheaper. and But a lot of people are massively in debt after doing it. Um, yeah, but I did it for nine years and when I started doing it, I definitely, my, my hours were uh, cobbled together and pretty pretty rough, but it's a great skill to exercise like by the end of the month your show's in in great shape because you're doing it every day for a month and also making friends and I never went to university so I feel like I kind of had my university experience up there of like staying up late and you know getting my heart broken and making friends it was great um so I know the show that you wrote uh dope was was a big uh was a big one and and got a lot of attention there and kind of led to a lot of other things um can you talk about putting that one together? Because that seems like that's when you really got personal on stage, maybe for the first time in that way. Yeah, that was a show, but I'd had a big breakup. And then it was, I think, the first time I was able to connect. I was I was talking about the breakup and talking about um, addictive behaviors in my life and connecting them and how they permeate all aspects of our lives, not just around substances and stuff. But it was, yeah, it was. Like, I guess it was more confessional and... Uh, I could just feel the response immediately was was much more um, intense and, and the audience seemed to really seemed to really dig it. So I love doing that show. And then that show became kind of the foundation of uh, my sitcom. Yeah. Yeah. It led directly to Feel Good. Yeah. Yeah. How did that happen? Uh, Channel 4 came to see it. And then we did like a we did a 20 minute pilot for them that they paid for. Um, and then they weren't sure if they were going to pick it up. It was just like a, yeah, like a 20 minute kind of taster with, with some of the cast and, uh, and then we, we brought it out to the States and tried to sell it here and Netflix bought it. So then it was a channel for Netflix co-production. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's a 
much bigger thing than than probably you even imagined it it would be once Netflix is on board and it's going to be all over the world and and in the states and everything. So how did you how did you kind of deal with the the pressure of that, knowing that this show was was going to be you know on such a big platform? I had to I had to really compartmentalize because it's so personal. So I had to just luckily I had a my co writer um, Joe Hampson who's like my best friend and he kind of helped me detach from it emotionally a little bit and and just and yeah not worry about being too uh revealing and then yeah it's crazy but it was the pandemic too like it came out the first season came out right at the start of the pandemic yeah, i remember yeah it was like one of the first things we were all watching uh, on netflix at the, in those early days yeah yeah which i'm sure it helps numbers wise for me but it also helps with um not really feeling if it had made an impact at all i was just locked in my house so i I had no idea that, you know, they don't really tell you the numbers. So you have no idea who's, who's watched it. And, and yeah, so I think that was kind of helpful because it happened in a vacuum and then we made the second season still in the pandemic. Um, and yeah, I think that was good. It was a little bubble of, of, you know, being creative with your, with your pals. One thing that I always think of, you know, when someone, when a comedian is playing a comedian in a show is you have to have material and you have to kind of figure out how good of a comedian you want this fictional version of yourself to be at a sort of earlier stage in their career. Um, is that something that you thought about a lot and sort of how, how to present this fictional version of May on stage? Yeah, I found that really hard. It was because that character is not a great comedian. <laughs> and uh, I mean, but, they, but have they their... kind of have to be good enough that you feel yeah. like, oh, maybe they're going to they're going to be good. <laughs> yeah. And they and they have their moments where it kind of, you know, they they hit on something good. But it I think we just the the sections of stand up in the show were always moving the plot forward. They were always about that. You, you rarely just kind of sat back and watched a set like Seinfeld wise. You yeah. know, and that it was like they were, it was usually about the character having some kind of emotional breakdown and <laughs> usually about them bombing. So, yeah, but it is really strange to write fake stand up um content. Uh, I'm from Canada. I came over in a canoe recently with Celine Dion. She was at the helm. Um, I'm recently single. Is anybody single? Give me a cheer. Um, yeah, and it's fine. I'm doing fine. I'm, uh, I'm catching up on my reading. Just reading my ex's Facebook page. That's all that I read. I feel weird recently. Um, and I don't know. The only way I can describe it is like, I, I feel like I'm full of birds. Um, not like hummingbirds, like I'm anxious, but like pelicans, like very greasy pelicans in my chest. I don't know if you've ever seen a photo after an oil spill and the beach is just, there's all these birds and they're covered in oil and they can't lift their wings and they're like, <laughs> they're in my chest. <laughs> Thank you, one person for laughing. Was it all written for that or was there anything that you were pulling from your act or old jokes or? I think there were, there were a couple of really old jokes from that sort of make me cringe to yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it is, and then it, and then it's so different watching your actual stand-up and then we're like oh you're you're actually quite good <laughs> yeah thanks thanks also doing fake stand-up for an audience of extras who are they're thinking about them themselves and so they're not really responding it's very surreal yeah like i remember being, talking to pete holmes about that um that he had a lot of trouble with that as well on, on crashing because he would be doing like many takes of these of these jokes that were either supposed to be going well or not well and, and gets totally. kind of exhausting for the audience as well. 
Yes, and every muscle in your body is going, I'm bombing. I need to switch things up. I need yeah. to like riff <laughs> with, but you, but you can't. can't. <laughs> no, for continuity. Um, you mentioned Lisa Kudrow, who plays your mother on the show. How did that happen? How did you, how did you get Lisa Kudrow involved? I still don't know how it happened. I, I can't believe it. She, um, yeah, we just sent her the, the scripts and sent them to her and she read them really quickly and, and came, it was such a shock. Like we were, yeah, we didn't think that she'd even read them. And then she responded to it. And then I think we sent her some of my stand up, and I sent her kind of a letter about, um, the character and we'd, we'd written it with, with her in mind, just cause that's a, it's useful when you're writing to have, you know, casting ideas, it helps you write, but we never thought she'd do it. And then she was so, so brilliant and so up for it and game. And especially in the second season it was like the height of the pandemic and she had to fly over to England and um that was yeah that was touch and go for a minute but she did it yeah it's funny because a lot of her scenes in the first season are on zoom but that was filmed before the pandemic yeah yeah (laughs) and then once and then once the pandemic was happening she had to come be in person um what was what was it about her as an actor that that made you want her to play your mom I think she has a real gravitas that um my mom also has and a real intelligence and I'm a big fan of the comeback and I think Lisa's just incredible at delivering these unexpected emotional gut punches where she really she can be so broad she can do like ridiculous stuff and then suddenly she'll she's so kind of there's a vulnerability there that's just heartbreaking as well so yeah I just think she's an amazing actor and I wish I could only write for her there's so much I want to to do with her you know I'm not saying I want to talk about the past, believe you me. I just want to know that you're going to a regular meeting. I've been very busy. I've been moving in with George and I can't sleep these days. You can't sleep? It's not a big deal. Oh my God. All right, I think I should just tell you, I think that's because you were four weeks premature. Was I? You were in an incubator, sweetheart. It's why we're not close. Are we not close? And now I have to go. Find a regular meeting. Yeah, bye. I know. So you did the, the two seasons and um, and didn't come back for, for any more. And I, I did hear recently that you actually, you wanted to make more than, than you actually ended up doing. Um, it wasn't the plan to be two and done, which is the uh, the British model for a lot of shows, but... Um, you felt like you there was more more story to tell there? It was one of those things. If they had said, we'll give you a third season, I would have been overjoyed. And, and I definitely would have uh, and had some ideas for, for more story. But then because they didn't, <laughs> then I think it, that affected the, obviously the way we wrote it. And, uh, and I'm really happy with how it turned out. Because in retrospect, if to keep going would just be torturing that couple so much. And you'd have to, they'd have to start behaving in ways that weren't in keeping with their characters and that relationship. And really it is, you know, all that they're such short episodes. If you put both seasons together, it's only three hours or something. And it really is just one, one love story. Um, and I'm, I'm pleased about that. I like that. So you knew what, when you were making the second season that that was going to be the, the last one? Yes. Yeah, we did. Yeah. That's, which that's is, fortunate at least because then you can kind of end it as opposed to being in limbo and having, you know, not, it's hard to end something that could be the end or might not be the end. Totally. Yeah, no, it was, it was good to leave them in a good place and kind of resolve some of the trauma <laughs> in a very neat way that doesn't really happen in life. Coming up, 
May directly addresses the rise of anti-trans comedy, especially on Netflix, and why they think comics like Dave Chappelle and Ricky Gervais are so fixated on that issue. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our episode with Abby Jacobson, who directed May Martin's new special, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to May Martin. Yeah. So in in the second season, um, you know, one of the storylines is that your character sort of comes to this realization that they're gender non-binary, which I thought was handled so beautifully on the show. Um, And you also, you know, decided to to come out publicly as non-binary, I believe, in 2021. Um, What were the what were the sort of most challenging or unexpected parts of that experience of of making that that statement, you know, on social media and and in that way? Well. It's always, yeah, first of all, I really, I, I, I came to that realization pretty late in my life. And I think writing, writing feel good really helps and mm. ha- having to examine the sources of my constant discomfort. <laughs> and, uh, and so when you have a character who's like struggling with gender dysphoria and stuff and, and then it's like, well, okay, narratively in season two, it makes sense that this character would resolve that issue. And then you're like, oh wait, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's me. Can you call me sir? Hmm. Did you hear that? Yeah. People always call me sir. Yeah. But do you like, when you think of me in your head, do you think of me like a, like a boy or a girl, would you say? Just you really. Yeah. More importantly, how, how do you see you? Um, yeah, just me, really, I think. Yeah. But then that feels like not really a thing, or I don't know what that means. Or... I think that that is a thing. That's non-binary, May. I, I do think maybe you should Google it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I probably should Google it. You tell me, and I'll use the right words. Say the right thing. Yeah, you said the perfect thing. 
yeah, and then the, it's always difficult, the, the pressure and conflict of whether to publicly say something. I think it's still pretty important and helpful for people to have that visibility, especially now, but also um, I was anticipating doing all the press for season two and being misgendered and uh, just wanting people, I thought if I put it out there, then I won't have to answer too many questions about it. But it's also, it's daunting because you're like, this might, this might evolve and, and change. You know, what if I go further on that journey and I, you know, I'm, my pronouns change again. It's like, ugh, why do I have to, you know, but whatever. I'm, I'm so glad I did. The response was pretty unanimously positive, except for uh, a handful of very loud um, <laughs> <laughs> trolls and sometimes at shows I get people coming and um sort of not picketing but like standing outside and handing out flyers to young queer people being like you're being brainwashed into surgery and you know which That's is not wild. true um I think it was about a week after you did that post on um Instagram that you were nominated at the BAFTAs in the female performance in the comedy <laughs> yeah. program category yeah um, yeah which is odd um where do you where do you kind of fall on this, you know, growing idea of, of non-gendered awards categories that seems to be picking up steam? Yeah, I really, I don't, I wish I had the answer. I, I mean, some award ceremonies managed to do it, like the music awards and things like that. So Yeah, and the Independent Spirit Awards have started doing it. Yeah, there's there's got to be a way, like. Yeah, music doesn't seem to have a problem with this as much. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe they have some gendered awards and some that aren't, but. Yeah, yeah, I wonder how you could how you could do it because you want to I guess in, initially they were gendered to sort of promote uh inclusion and representation and make sure there was a balance but so I don't know how you do it maybe you could do like female identified or just slightly change the wording or yeah but it must have just, been very odd for you to get that nomination as great as it is um yeah it was it was tricky because you don't want to seem ungrateful but then so many posts are like these amazing women uh and even even the other nominees, like I'm, you know, I'm thrilled to be nominated alongside these ladies. And you're like, ah, uh, yeah. So <laughs> it's tricky. If I had won, I would have uh, made some kind of funny comment in my speech. I hope. <laughs> but yeah, I was grateful, super grateful to be included. But um, it is bittersweet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is you know, it's it's this, this is stuff that you've been talking about on stage for a while. Um, you know. How has that aspect of it evolved for you and, and how to talk about it on stage, how to joke about it, how much you want it to be in your act? Because it is a a significant chunk of the special, but not, you know, sort of the dominant one. I think it's only about 10 minutes of the hour. That's, yeah, which is but important it, 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 to It's me. impactful. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I, um, I, I wish I didn't have to talk about it, uh, yeah, at all. It's been, it was really um, refreshing uh, in between... Uh, feel good coming out and then this special I was doing tons of improv and like improvised stand-up and it was really nice just to be I mean it was all just silly dumb clowny stuff like it was it was really nice to not feel like I had to be commenting on difficult things um or putting too much focus on that aspect of my life and personality which is just shouldn't be any bigger part of my life than it is for a cisgendered person you know but then there's um yeah, I definitely feel a responsibility because of what's going on in, culturally and in, in the States and, and big high-profile comedians punching down and taking shots at, at the trans community at a time when it's so tenuous, our, our sort of 
our rights are slipping backwards. So yeah, it's a, it's a bummer. So it's just trying to find a way to make it light and personal and affecting and try to get people's guard down. And then, you know, I want to be understood and, and seen. So it's, re- it's rewarding in that way, but I don't know. Did I answer your question? I'm kind of rambling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, it was, it was something I thought a lot about with this conversation too, is how much to talk about it. Um, but then, you know, after watching your special and I, I just found it so interesting how you addressed it on stage, um, and especially even directly addressing some of these comedians who are also on Netflix, um, who, you know, you, you know, you say are, are punching down, um, and this sort of, that they are the they are the most popular comedians that we have or some of these people who are who are doing this um you mentioned Dave Chappelle and, and Ricky Gervais I think probably since you taped uh Chris Rock special had some more uh you know jokes that were uncomfortable I think in this area um and you you say in the special that you that you watch those because people perhaps like me ask you about them um and you want to be informed about it um but yeah I mean how how do you how do you deal with with sort of um, navigating that and sort of how much you want to engage with with their work. It's a it's a really strange. I'm I'm still kind of I find it really mind boggling that 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 those people who I who I grew up being such a fan of and who seemed like these kind of cool left wing warriors and counterculture people. Um, I, I I can't really wrap my head around why they're so fixated on particularly trans women, but also. I mean, when, when Chappelle got attacked on stage and the first thing he said was that was a trans man, it was like, what is happening? I, I, I find it really confusing and I guess it's, you know, it's so personal to me and so much of my fan base is young queer people. And so it's, I'm always quite starkly confronted with these sort of statistics and, and, you know, how at risk that community is and, the, it, I don't understand. It's, it's such an at-risk minority group. It, I don't really know why there isn't more uproar about, yeah, publicly targeting them when the, when the consequences are so are so obvious. Like we're we're really seeing, uh, yeah, it's yeah. And then of course the comedians themselves complain about the consequences that they're going to face for talking about it, which are really nothing. I know. I don't really know what those are. It's yeah. You got didn't Louis C.K. want to. Grammy a couple of years yeah. ago. Didn't yeah, it's it's crazy, but um, I don't know. Maybe it'll swing back the other way. And I would love if those people were just a little more informed or open to to learning, because some of the things they're saying are demonstrably untrue. They're scientifically not true. They're so it's. I don't think you should. Of course, freedom of speech is so crucial, but I don't think you should be able to say things that are not true, that are sort of drumming up hate and violence. Yeah. You joke about those comedians watching your special, uh, in, in your, in your special, how do you think that they would react or what would you, what would you want people, whether it's comedians or anyone who, who holds those kinds of, you know, anti-trans or, or sort of misguided beliefs to, to take away from watching your comedy? Well, I think I'm being, I'm being a lot more direct and strongly worded in this interview than I am in the special. I think definitely. I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully I'm like, I, I think I say I, yeah, in the special, I, I keep it pretty light uh, and it's, you know, it's only three quarters of the way into the special. So my hope is always that by the time I get to that material, I've earned some goodwill and, and that people are, are into it enough that they're like, oh, well, I like this person. So, you know, they can't, they can't all be bad. <laughs> the, um, yeah, I doubt that those guys will see it. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I always just think with this stuff that, you know, we're we're just heading in this direction where there is not this gender binary that we're everyone is so used to and it just feels like we're we're heading that way. Do you foresee a a future without the without this being such a dominant issue, without people worrying so much about gender binary? I hope so. I think I mean, historically, there's been lots of times in history and in different cultures where our grip on this very rigid gender binary was was less loose. And it is kind of a recent colonial thing to to have to be so attached to that aspect of identity and to be so rigid about the idea that there's, you know, there's only two genders and et cetera. So, yeah, you know, hopefully we'll swerve into some new, more fluid time but that might take hundreds of years who knows i mean at this rate there's there's been such a violent um pushback that who knows we'll see i I mean think about even in the 70s it was more fluid right like definitely yeah yeah we've really it's there's a regression that's that's unnerving Mm, mm. i mean and not just with this issue right in general we're seeing yeah the rise of a scary faction yeah i love the the bit in your special too where you you talk a lot about sort of identity in a, in a broader sense of like what it, <laughs> your whole thing about, um, you know, this is me, um, and the snow globe and everything. Um, did you want to kind of find a way to talk about that in a, in a, in a broader way? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, that's, that's a good parallel. Yeah. Being attached to our personal narratives and our like, I'm my, I'm me and I, yeah. this is my favorite <laughs> color and this is my favorite band. And, and we get, we're just trying so desperately to build this identity of who we are. And really we're all just probably, you know, energy and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's probably all a simulation anyway. So, and then I was thinking, okay, this is a little abstract, but don't you think that in a way our brains and our minds are like our rooms and we furnish our, our minds with uh, experiences that we collect to then build what we think of as our identity and ourselves. And that's all we're doing is we're little like experience hunters collecting these to put them on our brain shelves and be like, I'm me. I'm <laughs> like, and I always visualize every experience that we collect is like a little novelty snow globe, you know? And we're just going around being like, <laughs> like one time I saw Antonio Banderas at the airport. Yes, I did. And I'm myself and no one else is me. I <laughs> and then... All human interaction is really is, I've really noticed this coming out of the pandemic, is all human interaction is just basically taking turns showing each other our snow globes and being like, I'm, I'm, and it's so just pathetically taking turns. And like, someone will be showing you their snow globe, you know, and, and you're trying to be a good listener. It's like a story about a party they went to five years ago, and you're like, yes, and you're like, and you are you as well. You're like, yes, exactly, yes. How, and how wonderful to be yourself as well. But the whole time, your eyes are just darting to your own shelf, 100%. The whole time, you're like, mm, yes, well, no, and yes, waiting for your moment to be like, and me as well, I have one. And my... <laughs> Thank you. I would love to hear more about this new series that you're working on. Um to do a hard pivot, uh, to, uh, to the, to the future. I mean, what, so yeah, feel good is, uh, is sadly over, but I'm glad that you got to, you know, end the story the way that, that you wanted to. Um, but yeah, what can you share about this, this new show? Well, it hasn't been officially greenlit. They've greenlit, um, the writer's room. So we're writing all the scripts and, uh, hopefully it'll happen, but it's, yeah, it's a 
it's a mm, it's a thriller. It's a comedy thriller about two teenage girls who are sent to a rehab behavioral therapy school in the woods. And it turns out to be much more nefarious than that. And I'm a sort of supporting character. I'm I'm uh, in the surrounding town uh, kind of unraveling that mystery and teaming up with these teens. It's yeah. a very different direction to go in, the uh, sort of mystery thriller. Yeah, it's a, it, the whole thing has been a learning curve and having a writer's room instead of just being me on my own with or with Joe, it's it's uh, but it's been really fun. It's I, uh, yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. And finding a way to keep it funny uh, and a comedy element in there as well. Oh, yeah. Big time. Yeah, it's funny. And uh, it has all the themes that, that interest me about adolescence and intergenerational conflict and uh, identity and all that. So I hope it I hope it happens. Sounds really great. I hope that it happens as well. Thanks. So now I want to do our segment called The First Laugh. Um, So I'm going to run through some of these firsts in your uh, career around comedy. And starting all the way back to childhood, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard or or one of the first, something that, that comes to mind? So my dad had a vinyl record of the Bonzo Dog Band, which was a old British comedy troupe from maybe the, the 60s, um, led by Vivian Stanshall. And it was like sketches and songs that were so dumb. Like they had a song about the trouser press. So it was like, do the trouser press, baby. And then they had a, <laughs> a song about a parrot. That, and um, I can't, they would have weird little interlude bits between the songs where it was like, and I'm, I'm just interviewing people on the street and here comes a lovely woman with an enchanting kangaroo and things like that. Like it was very Python kind of absurdity. And uh, my dad and I just loved it and it killed me. And, and he would constantly quote it and we'd do it, you know, in the kitchen together. So it was probably the Bonzo Dog Band featuring Vivian Stanshall. <laughs> I've never, no one has ever mentioned that before. So I, I appreciate it. I don't, yeah. I mean, now that you've brought it up, I'm going to have to go and find it. Um, do you remember the first time that you knew that you were funny, that you could make other people laugh? Yes. I, it was around the time that Ace Ventura came out and I was about seven or eight and I was going to school in England for one year and I don't know what kind of possessed me but I, I on my lunch break I gave tickets out to everyone and then put on a show and it was just me <laughs> it was just me doing Ace Ventura and uh I think also doing as many push-ups as I could like showing people how many push-ups I could do <laughs> it's a good combo but yeah yeah and I swear people were into it they were loving <laughs> that show and I was doing uh just Ace Ventura had Ace things. Ventura made it to uh England yet at that point do you think no you... and that, oh, was, so that the... was the key right they thought it was all original stuff exactly yeah <laughs> um what about the very first time that you performed stand-up on stage um what what sort of memories come to mind when you think about it how did it go where were you um you know all of that stand-up specifically or just comedy com- comedy well we can either what whichever one you want but uh i think oh i remember at being 13 and doing my first improv show at second city because i've been taking the classes and we had like our class performance um and i think it was probably in the afternoon on a sunday or something but they it was, you know they sold tickets it was a real venue and i was so scared that i could barely stand up from my i thought i'm not gonna be able to stand up and walk on stage like my my legs had stopped working I got a severe stage fright and then the first time I did stand up was a, you know a couple of years later and um I think I was high I think I was really high and I thought uh because I used to do characters a lot and 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 so yeah 
So the first time I did actual stand-up, I think I was smoking a cigarette on stage and just being a real dick and thinking that I was really cool and bombed, absolutely bombed. Yeah, people weren't into it? No, but at that point, my sort of teen ego was big enough that I I was less nervous. And that's always a, board, a red flag. If you're not nervous before, you're, <laughs> you're usually not going to do great. Was there a certain, was there a point where you started getting nervous again and that meant you were doing better? Yeah. I mean, as soon as you stop doing drugs, then, then your all your feelings come back <laughs> and your brain is allowed to feel things again. So yeah. Do you think that being, do you think that being on getting cleaner made you a better comedian in that sense? Oh, of course. Of course. Made me a better person. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. I've done a a few drunk shows that I think have benefited from me being drunk, but in general, as a rule, I think that's total bullshit. You you know, it's always better if you, if you have your wits about you. Once things started working for you a little bit more on stage, do you remember the first joke or bit or something that, that just really worked and you could keep going back to and, and you felt like was connecting to an audience? Hmm. Yeah. I used, well, after I stopped doing sketch and characters and stuff, then I did a lot of songs and I had a song about Don Cheadle about, it was about, he, I, he was filming a movie on the roof beside my apartment and uh, I was I looked outside my window and watched him filming there all day. And then I wrote a song about a scenario in which we fall in love and make, make sweet love. And then, uh, that song would always kill. It was just like a spoof of an existing, that four non blonde song. And then I sent it to his agent and he watched it. And then he emailed me a picture of him watching the song. And then we used to like tweet at each other and stuff. And then I'm, I finally, I met him a year ago. This is like 15 years after that song. And I was like, I've got to talk to him. So I, I, I went up to him and I was like, hi, you're not going to know who I am. And he was like, I know exactly who you are. And he, but he was like, I'm, I was really freaked out by that song, but I was like, I promise I'm not a stalker. And he was really nice. Do you have a, do you have a role for him in your new show? Maybe uh, you can get him in there. Yes. I would absolutely love that. I do have a role in my head for him. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, that was, that was your first time meeting Don Cheadle. But my other question is, do you have uh, a story about the first time you met one of your comedy heroes, someone in the comedy world who you just really looked up to and, and what it was like to meet them for the first time? Yes. Oh, many. I mean, I'm, I'm a real freak for like waiting at stage doors and especially in my teens. And as a kid, I was, I would just wait outside. For, so I, I think I was 11 and my grandmother had taken me on New Year's Eve to see a serious play that had Eddie Izzard in it. And Eddie, it was a, a drama. And, but I, I was so into Dress to Kill and, and, and Eddie's special. So I waited at the stage door. Uh, we missed the countdown to midnight. Like we, it was, yeah, the countdown happened. Me and my grandma standing in the cold, my poor <laughs> grandmother. And then Eddie came out just looking like a rock star um, high heels and like red lipstick and I was like quivering in my little waistcoat and uh Eddie signed my program and seemed pretty pretty out of it I will say (laughs) but very very kind but you know it was New New Year's Eve they'd been partying in the green room and yeah but it was it was great uh what's the update have you met Bette Midler yet um do you plan to uh what what how do you think that would go oh man I I I haven't and I I don't even know if I want to because I don't want I just, I don't, it would have to be perfect, you know, (laughs) I, I'd be so sad if it didn't go exactly how I want it to go, where, where we're laughing together, you know, we're hugging, we're high-fiving, like it, it would have to be, 
absolutely perfect. So no, we haven't met. I should never acknowledge my existence, but that's sort of perfect. Yeah, there's still time, but I understand if you just want to leave it in the, you know, in the realm of the imagination. I feel the same way about Sarah Michelle Gellar. Um, I'm terrified to meet her, but I do want to, but I don't want to. She's in my mind, just kind of a god. She's kind of back. I mean, there's she's someone else you might be able to cast in your show, I think. She's back in a big way. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, finally, the last question is, is, is there a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, God. Many. <laughs> Just, I mean, in general, I find bombing pretty funny. Uh, not in the moment, but I, I love watching people bomb. I find it really kind of heroic and moving. And uh, I don't mind bombing myself in retrospect, but in the moment, obviously it's awful, but I have a, a best friend called Sabrina Jalise, who's a stand-up comedian. And we, yeah, we'd known each other since we were about 15. And we had one of those friendships where we were really creatively prolific when we were together. We were like, we are hilarious together. Our dynamic is amazing. We were, we were in love with our friendship um, and no one else was. And I probably found us pretty annoying. And then we had booked a, a show in front of kind of big Canadian TV industry people at the time. And, and we, we'd written these sketches and we were like, this is going to be our big moment. And I can't wait to show people what amazing friends we are and how funny we are. And then I, I don't think I've ever bombed so badly. It was like, <laughs> it was like bizarre. It was that, that we'd sat and written this thing that we, we were convinced was funny. And uh, very quickly it became clear that it was not only not funny, but borderline offensive. And um, we were just making eye contact realizing what was happening and that we were and and just the panic and the you know, being stuck in that sketch too it's not stand-up so you can't be like well I'm bombing just like well this is an eight minute sketch that's just gonna have to keep going and oh man yeah we talk about that a lot we, we reminisce well you've both proven how funny you are uh since so I think you've you've overcome it <laughs> thanks yeah well we, we're gonna start a podcast and I'm like oh, yeah I wonder if the same thing will happen <laughs> where we think it's going to be <laughs> charming and everyone else is like, shut the fuck up. That could be a good concept for a podcast, though. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we think this is funny and you probably don't. Yeah. Um, well, May, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I'm just such a big fan of yours and, oh, and Feel Good was really uh, was a really special show um, for me during the, the pandemic. And I think uh, it just uh, it means a lot to, to talk to you and, and congrats on the new special. I think it's fantastic. Thank you so much. That means a lot. It's that nerve wracking moment before it comes out. So that, that means a lot. Thanks, Matt. I think people are going to love it. Um, thank you. And uh, yeah, good luck with everything else uh, with your with your hectic life. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. All right. I want to thank May Martin for joining me on this episode. You can stream their new special, SAP, starting today on Netflix, where you can also find both seasons of Feel Good. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.